Welcome back in listeners to another fantastic episode of Whisper in the Wings. We have a great episode in store for you. Joining us today, we have members of the upcoming production of Shylock and the Shakespeareans playing now through June 17th at the New Ohio Theater. You can get your tickets and more information by visiting newohiotheater.org. But with us today, we have the writer and director, Edward Einhorn, the performer, Jeremy Carrican, and the performer, Yael Haskell. So everyone, welcome, welcome this morning to Whisper in the Wings from Stage Whisper. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. Thank, Thank you for having us. It's great to have some of you here for the first time, Yael. It's great to have you back. Lovely to be here. And it's so great that you're all here with this wonderful show, Shylock and the Shakespeareans. It's a, I mean, first of all, anyone who knows their Shakespeare is going to be immediately like head turning, like, wait, I'm sorry, what? But the premise and the story of it is absolutely so incredible and so timely. So Edward, why don't I start with you since you're the writer and the director and ask you, can you tell us about the show? Sure. So I'm I'm going to give you a quick title clarification first. The it's actually the Shylock and the Shakespeareans because there is no character named Shylock in it. Uh, it's name. a character named Jacob who is called Shylock as a slur. And so, as that title might imply, the the play reenvisions the Merchant of Venice from a Jewish perspective. And so, Yael plays Jessica. Jacob's daughter, Jeremy plays Jacob, and the Shakespeareans are a bunch of white supremacists who are following Shakespeare's teachings and therefore have a sort of unfavorable view towards uh, Jews and others. I I, I want to say I love that, but I mean, I don't love that story. But I mean, <laughs> it, it's it's an important story. It's incredible that you've, you've created this, this familiar story, kind of brought it to the modern age, if you will. So what, where did you come up with the idea for this? I had written something. It was the, for the first thing, this was like 25 years ago. When I first came to New York, I wrote a play called A Shylock. And it was really sort of exploring it from a much more academic perspective. And I was, it was each scene reflected like an interpretation of the play. And I was sort of fascinated with the play and putting the fascination on stage. And it was fun and farcical, but it was also a little more academic and not the sort of play I would write nowadays. And so about five years ago, there was a dramaturg. They were do, uh, working for a theater in Virginia. They were putting up a, a production of Merchant of Venice. They were looking for a companion piece. And so I went to the, to the old thing, thinking maybe I'll revise it. And then I realized there's no way to revise it in a way that makes me happy as a writer today. So I just wrote uh, a new play from the start. I kept the name Jacob was in the old play and there was, you know, maybe three lines that I used, sort of gabo malapropisms <laughs> that I that I used again. But mostly it was a new piece. And then the artistic director of that theater lost his job. The the production was canceled. The dramaturg left. So I had to find a new home for it. So I decided to do it. My own theater company, we, we ended up with, uh, and so I developed it with Untitled Theater Company number 61, which I've been running for a while. Fantastic. Let me go ahead and bring in our performers, Jeremy and Yael, and let me ask the two of you, how did you come upon this show? 
Well, I love this part of the story. I was an intern for Edwards Company back in, I think, 2016, when when Untitled was doing The Iron Heel, which was a, a socialist musical that, that traveled around New York. It was so delightful. It was really one of my, if not my first experience of New York theater and quite an exciting one at that. So I sort of stuck around. I was extremely interested in Edward's aesthetic and the the sort of absurdist, historical, often neuroscientific slant of his work. So I we we stayed in touch and I was delighted to be a part of this show. We did a couple of readings, I think one prior to the pandemic, and then some Zoom iterations. And Merchant of Venice was one of the plays that I pretended to read in high school for class and really just skimmed. And I didn't read it fully until after reading the Shylock and the Shakespeareans. So I was shocked when I actually read the play. So it's been really fascinating to to come upon both of them sort of at the same time. How about you, Jeremy? So I'm not really an actor. I mean, I act occasionally, but Eddie and I have the same playwriting agent. I'm a playwright and I've admired Ed's work for a long time. We both write similar. I, I think we have a, a, a similar aesthetic that I, in a, in a genre I like to call brain candy. You know, I got it. Uh, hopefully I, I invoking the name of like Tom Stoppard or someone, you know, Václav Havel and people like that, you know, where we like to play around with intellectual ideas in a way that's more fun than, than, than actual serious intellectualism. Uh, I, I don't want to be speaking for Edward, but I, that's, I, that's one of the things I really enjoy about him, his play about the the, the golem in Prague. I really liked and uh, I saw a reading of in D.C. And uh, and Edward called me one day and he asked if, if I'd still act because I just moved back to New York. And I said, well, like, occasionally I was doing a workshop at the Actors Studio uh, directed by Estelle Parsons at, at the time in a new play. And I said, uh, well, I am again a little bit. Why? And he told me about this play, a play I you know that many Jewish theater purveyors are deeply ambivalent about for very good reasons. And I thought, wow, that's a that's a good idea. I read the script and I thought this is this is the kind of thing that a, a playwright can say and 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 mean without actually writing it, which is nice. So I said, yeah, I'd like to try. And I tried out and I got it. That's how I got it. That's fantastic. Well, sticking with the two of you still, I want to ask what has it been like developing your particular roles in this show? And Jeremy, if I can start with you on that. Oh, well, I mean, I I, I wish I could say it was conscious. I mean, uh, and I had a method to it, but it's it's always felt kind of organic. You know, both, you know, I, I just am doing relatives of mine, gentle, kind, fun, playful Jews and Armenians. I'm half Armenian. We're lucky. I'm lucky I made it out of the 20th century, frankly. And, you know, just well-meaning and constantly beset by real haters and trying to remain good in the face of that, I think is the core of Jacob's character. And at some point it, it just get it, you know, it, it gets, it gets to be a lot. And that's what, that's the core I've tried to stick with in this. And Edward's always been, he's an incredibly gentle and nurturing director. So he lets me screw up a lot. So I think that's helpful. So you kind of get to find your own, your own lane. That's that's kind of been my process, if I can say I had one. And I did air quotes for those of you just listening on audio. 
And yeah, what about you? I believe you played the role of Jessica. Is that right? That's right. I love playing Jessica because she gets to say a lot of things that I have felt before and not had the space to say necessarily in my own family. I think one of my favorite scenes is me. I think my favorite scene is with Jeremy when I confess to him that I'm marrying a Christian spoiler. And he tells me how he feels. I know. (laughs) I know. Inciting incident. And I say, you know, one of my first lines in the play is everyone's an anti-Semite to you. I say that to my father. And I have said iterations of that or thought iterations of that to my family so many times throughout the years of the, the, the dynamic of older Jewish folks imparting to me the the lasting effects of the holocaust and well that's that's some it's so common in my generation to to feel like everyone is beating down on us everyone hates the jews and we aren't feeling it as keenly as past generations as we get farther and farther from the time period in which this play was happening but as we get older we start to recognize that what we have taken as ignorance and given the benefit of the doubt to often is you know, veiled malice and prejudice. And it's been sort of strangely healing to be able to (laughs) say things from Jessica that I felt before and then reckon in real time with coming into the realizations that I've had and that she has in the play. And then development-wise, like Jeremy said, Edward is a very generous director and sort of lets us play around and see what works and then does some, some gentle shaping of what we throw out in the rehearsal room. Very cool. Loving that. Well, let me ask all three of you this next question. What is the message or thought that you're hoping the audiences will take away? And I want to start with you, Edward, because you are the writer and the director. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think I think the play addresses multiple things and I, I shy away from from saying there's a message and rather, you know, thematic questions. So, you know, it's a thematic question about, you know, obviously there's the, the thematic questions about anti-Semitism and what are the connections between the like anti-Semitism of Shakespeare's day and today's anti-Semitism. And what, you know, how did the myths of the those times still affect the like the, the modern like conspiracy theories and hatred that you see like bubbling up uh, today. So that's one of the, the the main questions. Another question is how does one what defines Jewish? And that is that's a question that that's particularly relevant to Jessica because she converts in order to marry, and then other things happen to her. And and where does she lie in the continuum? of Jewishness and what does that mean? And are Walter Sobchak in reverse. <laughs> yeah. So that's one of the the, the questions or the, the thematic questions of it. And also, you know, there's a question of like, which is unanswered and maybe maybe it's an answer is 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 how how to see a way through all these things, which is I think the 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 play presents a problem without necessarily an answer, but hopefully by presenting a problem, it, it didn't, you know, let people think about answers. And so, yeah, those are the main, main questions. I love that. That's fantastic. Yael, how about you? 
is there a message or thought you're hoping the audiences take away from the Shylock and the Shakespeareans? Don't use violence. No, I, I also shy away from, um, well, one thing I love about this play is that it is not didactic, or at least I don't experience it that way. I think of it sort of as a reflection of, I think there's hesitation around discussing and depicting anti-Semitism. It, it, there, there are often competitions of the isms and of various oppressions and today a weighing of what's worse than anything else, which of course is not particularly productive. So I think just seeing anti-Semitism reflected on stage and being able to interpret that as you will and reminding folks that it is present is enough of a message. And particularly right now, I mean, it, it, it just so happens timing wise that this trial is going on for the deadliest anti-Semitic attack in history in 2018. And I think that has really hit home for me, seeing that in the news and seeing this play one, you know, theater. In the United States, we've certainly had worse. Elsewhere. In the US, yes, yeah. me, in the United States. So this plays a mirror and that's something I appreciate about it. Yes. Yes. And finally, Jeremy, what about you? What is the message or thought you're hoping the audiences take away? Well, I mean, the, 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 the play is primarily satire and satires have, have negative messages, not positive ones. And which I mean to say this, don't do this, see this. And it's, and Edward's a great noticer of all of a lot of the facets. I can't say all, but certainly more than I thought of, of anti-Semitism. And I hope people see uh, all the all the all the the the, the forms anti-Semitism can take. You know, there's the well-meaning elites in the form of Portia and the way that they use, you know, she uses she ends up using Jewish pain for her, you know, own growth and aggrandizement. At the end, there is, you know, a woman who at the end ends up blaming anti-Semitic violence on the Jews themselves. There's just all sorts of ways in which anti-Semitism gets manifested. And uh, Edward, you know, kind of presents a menu of of you know, hundreds of options of how it it has formed and and has been a constant throughout the centuries and not just on one side of the political equation, all over. So I, I it's kind of a a smorgasbord, if you will, of uh, of Jew hatred. That I think that's that's an interesting that's an interesting thing, and it's a it, and it's it, it's interesting to show what you know, and it's not just about Jews. This is just ethnic hatred in general using anti-Semitism. It is also, uh, that point is expandable to other other forms of racism. And in some ways it is unique to to, to anti-Semitism, but in other ways, other ethnicities can can respond to it and and find out the different forms that these, you know, these these virulent habits have. So I, I think I, that's what I hope people take away with them. And I hope they'll be entertained because this is an entertaining and funny show as well. It is, I, I called it aggressive satire in the past that it is, it, it, it's angry, but it is also funny. That is fantastic. What a wonderful, what a wonderful thought there. And that's a perfect lead in to my final question for this first part, which is who do you hope have access to the show? And Jeremy, I want to start off by sticking with you, if that's okay. Yeah. I will say this, that you are, if you're, if you're fans of Jews and Shakespeare together, this show's just written for you. I'm, I'm telling you this, you, you could not find a more bespoke show, you know, 
it's taking your measurements. It is, it, it, it's slenderizing. It, it tastes great. It's less filling. You won't find a better show than this. If you are a Jew, like Jews and love Shakespeare, you're set. So that's great. But, you know, just having an, uh, you know, com- people who, people who understand broadly the problems of hatred and the pernicious problems of hatred that have been with us since, you know, since the Middle Ages, and arguably since the Council of Nicaea, but, you know, at least since Shakespeare's time, people who have seen those veins of hatred continue and recognize them, I think they'll find a lot in this show. Yael, how about you? I hope that younger Jews will be able to see this show. I think I think the content of this show will feel familiar to older Jews. I hope they see it too, obviously, but I I think it hits different for younger folks like myself who are still coming to terms with the fact that anti-Semitism is is rife and perhaps even growing. I would hope that folks in my own demographic have the the wherewithal to come. Yes. And finally, Edward, who do you hope have access to the show? You know, I mean, obviously we're going to have a big Jewish audience and we're going to, you know, we're going to have the Shakespeare fans. But I, I do hope to also broaden it and not, you know, just be speaking to the choir. And there's also, you know, Jeremy touched on a little thing that I that I try to do with the play, which is, you know, anti-Semitism is a unique form of prejudice, but it also connects to multiple types of prejudice. And so I deliberately touch on some things about racism and there's a Black character and an Asian character and, and there's immigrant questions and there's all these things. Because, I mean... You know the, uh, the 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 buzzword, I guess nowadays is intersectionality. But the there is a truth, I think, to saying that you know hatred against one group is going to always double into hatred against other groups. And anyone who like indulges in it when they're like you know <laughs> like and thinks that you know maybe they're immune, you know, it always sort of stuns me when you have when you have somebody you know, whatever, let's say a Jewish person expressing racism, a black person expressing anti-Semitism, or whatever it is, like those, all those, all those things, where I think, don't you know, well, that's going to rebound against you, like, that's going to just, just, just hit you back in the end. There's a corollary to that, too, I think, Edward, yeah. that, you know, uh, we're becoming rife with conspiracist thinking these days, and the mother of all conspiracy thinking is, you know, anti-Semitism, and, yeah that somehow we're controlling things and I've never controlled anything in my life, but the, but also no one believes just one conspiracy theory. You hear people talk about big pharma. You hear people talking about the UFOs and whatever. And and at some point they're going to come around to, and what about the Jews? And like, it, it's not, it's never just one thing, you know, Uh, it goes the other way too. It's not just, it's not just racial hatred. It's just everybody thinks that somebody else is in control. I'm like, I'm sorry, maybe things are out of control. Now, I want to give our listeners a chance to get to know the three of you a little bit more on a personal level. And I want to start by asking the three of you, 
what or who inspires you? What playwrights, composers, or shows inspire you, or some of your favorites? And Edward, if I could start with you on this one. I think Jeremy hit some of some of it when he was talking about things like Tom Stoppard or these brain candy. Václav Havel is somebody that I worked with actually, but also admired from from afar for a long time. And there there are there are all these people who are writing in. I mean, I would in a broad way say it, it relates to theater of the absurd, though it's not. It's a it's a that's a very broad category for me. But the writing with humor about dark topics, writing about intellectual issues but in a sort of dramatic entertaining way and those are the the people that that I'm drawn to as writers and I often tell the story of how I got involved in theater which was my brother who was nine years older than me was taking a class in existentialism in I think 11th or 12th grade and he started reading to me the plays that they were they get so he read to me Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead Waiting for Godot, Rhinoceros, you know, <laughs> I forget what the, the other ones were, but the bald soprano. And and my father would come in and be like, what are you doing? He's like eight or nine or whatever. He doesn't enjoy that. I'm like, no, no, I like it. I like it. <laughs> and that 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 has, has ruined me for life. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Jeremy, what about you as both a, a playwright and a performer? I think absurdism is great for kids, frankly. And you, everybody starts with Chuck Jones. You look at, you know, you look at the, the classic cartoon Duck Amuck. That's one of the that's one of the greatest existentialist absurdist pieces of art and literature that's out there. You know, it's, you know, the Hunter's Trilogy, some of those, uh, the Bob Clampett. That is just you know, the, 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 the world was just getting over World War II and this unbelievable destruction and God doesn't care and no one cares and there's no one in control. And this is our, the, the best response is to laugh. And so those, those things from the late 40s, I absolutely adore. I'm also inspired by mid, other mid-century writers, Raymond Chandler, P.G. Woodhouse, who oddly enough went to the same secondary school in, in, uh, in London. I'm inspired, you know, other playwrights that you know we would come to mind alan Athorn, just the sheer you know the 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 effortless experimentation with theatrical forms that and that's always entertaining first i love that you know i i had the i had the good fortune of being the researcher for inside the actor's studio for almost 20 years so i got to see every single one of my heroes interviewed as actors and some writers and some directors uh, people like you know scorsese and coppola and amazing uh film artists like that so th those are those are my heroes that's fantastic and rounding us out yeah i know we've had you on before but but could you remind us or, or maybe add to the list a little hmm i think last time we talked to injury i talked to big game and in performance art at the time we were <laughs> we were talking with eric n so i so i had mind in the avant-garde but right now I'm on a big Elizabeth Suedos kick. She is an, I think, well-known in the in the musical theater world, but sort of underappreciated at large. An amazing composer, queer icon for me personally. And she wrote, she wrote The Runaways, which I think was her most commercially known work on, on Broadway, Tony nominated. 
But she recently, she passed away a while back, but we recently remounted one of her shows, The Beautiful Lady at La Mama, which is a tale of Russian revolutionary poets, uh, incredibly beautiful. And a couple folks released an album of her old, older works from across her repertoire called the Elizabeth Suedos Project. And it's just fantastic. I mean, the way she... The way she thinks and her lyrics are so clever and the sounds that she comes up with in the rhythms are unlike any other music I've heard of. So if you're listening to this, go on Spotify and listen to Bird Lament by Elizabeth Suedos. Very odd, very beautiful. That's my pitch. Love that. And that is a great segue to my next question. I know that you've all been busy with this show. I mean, it started previews back on June 1st, but... Have any of you seen any great theater lately that you might be able to recommend to our listeners? So on my night off, I went to see The Magic Flute at the Met. A friend of mine is one of the non-singing actors in it. But the it's, it's directed by Simon McBurney. And it is an amazing production. It is such a clever production. I'm a fan of Simon McBurney to begin with. But it, it is su- such a clever production. And... It uses like high tech, low tech a lot. So it's like on stage Foley and there's a guy who's drawing the video backdrops like visibly. So he has like a chalkboard and he's drawing these things and they're being projected simultaneously. And he he just has a downtown theater sensibility, but he's doing it at the, at the Met. And that, that was what my friend who's in the, in the production said to me as well. He's like, he's one of us because <laughs> she also does a lot of downtown work with it. And, and you know, but, but he has the mat. <laughs> and so it was great. It was great. Fantastic. I just, you know, I, uh, so Leopold Stat in London, if you're, you know, if you want a double feature of anti-Semitism, remarkably <laughs> moving you know, play from a a play uh, from a playwright who's frequently misjudged as being a bit distant. This is this is his one of his most emotionally complete uh, works since at least since Arcadia and summer 1976. Dave Auburn's an old friend of mine, so I, in a full disclosure, it's you know it's a the scale of what it is exploring is small, about, just about a simple friendship that took place over a summer. But it, it's moving, it's sweet, it, it it breaks a few rules of playwriting that I try to teach in my uh, playwriting class, but it does it so well with such elan. And again, you know, and Dave is, I would, you know, I, and, and Dave's a wonderful guy, so uh, I recommend seeing Summer 1976. And Laura Linney's great. Her dad was my playwriting teacher, uh, Romulus, who was another person I hope to be as good as one day. That's terrific. And I want to see, I wanted to see the thing at La Mama. Well, hopefully it'll return. Hopefully it'll tour something, something of that nature. I haven't seen anything recently that is still running. But if if folks are in the the, the fourth arts block neighborhood, I know at La Mama, I work there full disclosure, so I'm always hyping La Mama. But Ma Yi will be doing a reading series in mid June. That's at La Mama, which. I don't know much about yet, but I'm sure I'd recommend a short stack of plays. I love that pitch, a short stack of plays. Yum, yum, yum. yum. A short stack of little pancake, pancakes of theater. Well, let me ask now, what is your favorite part about working in the theater? And Yael, I'm going to start with you on this one. That's a wonderful question. What is my favorite part of working in the theater that I get to do 
all sorts of things that I don't do in my regular life. I get to complain to a father figure about anti-Semitism. I get to yell sometimes. I get to sing in Hebrew, which I guess I could do in my regular life if I went to synagogue as often as my family would like me to. But just the, the expanse of opportunity to experience different stretches of life that I don't incorporated into my daily activities, I think is so invigorating and freeing and cathartic. It's a challenge. And I love that about writing as well. It's it's the chance to imagine something I don't always have the space to create or experience in reality. So imagination and and yelling. <laughs> That's fantastic. Edward, what about you? Well, I think what it comes down to is the theater is the place where I'm happy. And why that is, I I don't even know I can completely answer. But when I'm in a theater and working on a show that I'm happy with or seeing a good show, I'm, you know, it, it's to an extent, I think for people who, you know, have that feeling in a synagogue or a church or whatever, I think there's a connection to that feeling. There's a, there's a almost sort of holiness to it, but it, it sort of revives my soul. <laughs> and I know that like, you know, there's, I've just, I just noticed it that even in like hard times and, and, and when things are difficult, I can walk into a rehearsal room and feel like, this is this is the place I want to be. And so so that's my instinctual answer. I love it. And Jeremy, what about you? I don't want to crib Edward's answer here, but it's very similar. You know, I the first day of rehearsal for the lifespan of a fact, I just just commuting to work to work on on a play. I had this enormous smile on my face and I still do that commuting to work to be in Edward's play. That same smile is on my face. I can't quite answer what it is other than a lot of the things that Edward was saying. But, you know, ex you know, executive directors and audience members, turn off your podcast right now. I can't believe they pay me to do this. It's so, I, I pay you. All right, turn it back on again. It's fine. But it gives me such an anachis to do this. It, it, <laughs> it fills my soul. It makes me happy in ways I cannot express it, it logically. It's, we're, we're, it, it's, it's teamwork. It's, it's intellectual pursuits. It's, it, you know, it's soul-based pursuits. It's physical pursuits. It's all the same thing. And I'm getting a paycheck. What, what could be better? Yes. Amen. Absolutely. I love that. <laughs> well, we have now arrived at my favorite question to ask guests, which is, what is your favorite theater memory? I remember watching a, a play called National Anthems back at Jiva in Rochester, New York, where I grew up. And it was about suburbs of Detroit. And I, it was the first play that I'd ever seen that was about a kind of world that I recognize. And I realized that, you know, before they were teaching me, you know, Shakespeare, you know, Romeo and Juliet, what do I know from teenagers in Verona? What do I know about 
those people. And then I was like, oh, I know those people. And I, uh, someone could write those people and someone could play those people. And that was the first time I thought, oh, there's a space for me there. And I was about 14, 15 and my, my mother had taken me there. And that was my favorite uh, that was closely followed by one of my least favorite memories. I looked over, my mother was asleep. I was gonna kill her, but she was tired. I don't blame her, I was a tiring child. But my favorite was that I was like, I recognize this and there's this place, possibly a place for me. And I think that was, that's one of my, I, I don't know if it's my absolute favorite, but that's the first time I, I thought, oh, I could do this. Loving that. Edward, you had one as well. So I mentioned briefly that this working with Václav Havel and the first thing that we did with him with was a huge project. We theater company put on a festival of all his work and there were a lot of moments of that were very memorable, but I'm going to pick with this one. So it was the anniversary of the Velvet Revolution, which of course he led. And we scheduled a Velvet Revolution party and we, we scheduled it at the brick in brooklyn and you know which is uh, as you know like the 60s theater like and uh, and havel had been coming to a lot of the shows but i assumed that he was not going to be coming to that show or the party that we were having because he had diplomatic duties relating to the fact that this revolution that he had led was I was having its anniversary. <laughs> and so, and you know, he was he he was coming to the theater at that point unannounced all the time anyway. So the first sign would be like the Secret Service would come and check out the place before he got there. And, and so the Secret Service would arrived, and I was like, "Really? <laughs> Is it coming tonight?" <laughs> and so he arrived uh, with a, a play called uh, Temptation, Ian Hill was directing, and he brought with him Madeline Albright, because she was supposed to go to another event, but he's like, no, no, I'm coming to this. <laughs> and, and like various ambassadors and council general, like the, this diplomatic crew came, came in. And they watched the show. And then afterwards, we had the party where I had this cover band with Trey Cave doing uh, music of the Velvet Underground. And he was there and he made a speech saying, you know, I'd rather be here than anywhere else. And uh, with the best people in the world. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, you know, when I was in Prague, I went to the theater that he that he had really done his first work. And it was really not much bigger than the, the new Ohio or the Ohio where we were. We, we did a lot of shows in the Ohio at the time. And, you know, it just is just an indication that at, at heart, who he was, it's the same Person, the you know all, all of us were when when we were talking about like why we want to be in the theater and that connection. He had that same same connection, and yes, he was the uh, former president and the you know leader of a revolution and this great moral figure in the world. But he was a, he was a theater person. That's where he wanted to be. That's where he loved to be, and so that that's probably my favorite. But For that sure. is an incredible That's memory. Amazing. Wow. You're so lucky. Yael, what is another one of your favorite theater memories? 
My all-time favorite theater memory will, would be developing the Trojan women at La Mama. Sorry, I guess I can't stop talking about La Mama. Uh, it's been where a lot of my theater memories have taken place. Edward saw this show, I believe, back in 2019. We It was a production of Elizabeth Suedos's Trojan Women, all in a sort of transliterary language that she created, a mix of Navajo and Nahuatl and ancient Greek and Latin. And we, it was produced originally in 1974 and has traveled all over the world since then. We had about 50 people in this cast from Guatemala, Kosovo, and, and Cambodia, and then some folks from the U.S. And the original director, Andre Serban, came and sort of united all of us. None of us spoke the same language. It was pure chaos. But but we all came together and created this, this restaging of the original production that felt as if we had come up with it in 2019. And collaborating with people that I couldn't even communicate to except in this sort of transrational language was phenomenally impactful. That will always, I think that will always be one of my most formative theater memories. I love that. I heard that was an incredible production, an incredible production. So I'm so glad you were a part of that. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you all for sharing those incredible memories. They were all amazing. Thank you. Are there any other productions or projects that any of you have coming up that we might be able to plug? I'll, I'll, I'll say a couple things. One is simultaneous with this show. There's a festival going on called Rehearsal for Truth at the Bohemian National Hall, which is a festival of, of work from Central and Eastern Europe in the tradition of Václav Havel. And it's a festival that I'm actually taking over next year. So <laughs> there's an interest, but it's, but it's, it's uh, running like parallel to, to the show. It's always really great, interesting work and international work that you wouldn't see otherwise. And I highly recommend it. And this is way in advance, but next year I will be at La Mama <laughs> with an opera called Exagog, which is based on the... Uh, Second century BCE, ancient Greek Jewish play, the earliest ever written, but it's a mixture of modern and ancient and opera and play and set around a modern theater. And so that will be like, a you know, nearly a year from now, but people should go to it. <laughs> the, the lifespan of a fact may be playing near you. It's still going around in various theaters and uh, throughout America. I have a new, a new science fiction comedy family drama called The Snatching, which is in discussion with various theaters at the moment. That's a sort of a cheeky modern AI slash social media take on invasion of the body snatchers. And yeah, and that's those are the big projects in my life these days. Exciting. If you happen to be around anyone listening here on Monday, June 26th, I am having a reading of my play uh, called Sleepwake at La Mama. It's a play about a homicidal sleepwalker and a psychology student who becomes obsessed with her. And I will always hype the New York neo-futurists who are every Friday and Saturday at the Crane Theater, 10.30 p.m., a late night punk rock chaos theater show. Pop, 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 pop. <laughs> Yes. the drum roll we love them dearly wonderful upcoming things for all of you i can't wait to hear more about those and if our listeners would like more information about the shylock and the shakespeareans or about any of you 
about your new works or they'd like to maybe reach out to you, how can they do so? I can be found on at Carrick and J on Twitter. And I have uh, jeremycarrickan.com on, on your local web browser. And I'll be appearing uh, until June 17th in the Shylock and the Shakespeareans, which you should do before you do any of those other things. Agreed. I similarly exist on your web browser inside your tiny phone at yellhaskell.com. So I'm at edwardeinhorn.com <laughs> and uh, on various Twitter and, and Instagram. But the show, if you want to find out, you can always connect through through the untitledtheater.com website. It's theater with an E-R. And, and also the New Ohio has, its, has it on, on their website as well. Perfect. Well, Edward, Jeremy, I'll thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. This has been absolutely wonderful. The show sounds amazing. And thank you for sharing some of your personal insights in the theater, including some great memories and some exciting upcoming projects. Really appreciate your time today. So thank you. Thank, thank you, Andrew. Pleasure talking Thanks, Andrew. with you. This is great. My guests today have been the writer and director Edward Einhorn, the performers Jeremy Carrican and Yal Haskell, who are all part of Untitled Theater Company Number no. 61's presentation of the Shylock and the Shakespearean playing now through June 17th at the New Ohio Theater. You can get your tickets and more information by visiting newohiotheater.org. And we also have some contact information for our guests, which we'll be posting on our episode description as well as on our social media. But if you're in the New York area, make sure you hurry over to the newohiotheater.org or just swing by the New Ohio Theater. Get your tickets now for this great show, The Shylock and the Shakespeareans, playing now through June 17th. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez reminding you to turn off your cell phones, unwrap your candies, and keep talking about the theater in a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Maniac by Jazzar. Other music on this episode provided by Jazzar and Billy Murray. You can also become a patron of our show by logging on to patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. There you will find all the information about our backstage pass as well as our tip jar. Thank you so much for your generosity. We could not do this show without you.